This is part three of our Rape Disability Training. Dr. Julia McGee is going to lead today's training for us, um, and we're really excited about it. Uh, builds on the two trainings on grave disability that came before. Maybe Dr. McGee, I'll turn it over to you. All right. So uh, before we get okay, so before we get started, I just want to thank. Dr. Bromley, Jean Lundquist, Stephanie Moon, Liz Javier, and Anthony Ruffin for their invaluable contributions to this lecture. So today we're gonna to talk about successfully navigating involuntary treatment. I'm Dr. Julia Lashar McGee. I am currently working with DMH UCLA Public Mental Health Partnership. Um, for about the past 15 years, I have worked at all three psychiatric uh, emergency rooms in LA County, which would be Harbor, USC, and all of you. Um, so I have a ton of experience um, evaluating holds and making decisions about who stays in the hospital and who goes. So, so you understand sort of my bias and where I'm coming from. Um, I'm hoping this will be helpful. There's a lot of uh, content to cover. So what we're going to do is sort of take pauses in between um, throughout the lecture to give time for questions and then hopefully have some time at the end for questions as well. Okay, so um, I don't know if you recall because this was two weeks ago, uh, but when we were talking about in part two, we were talking about clinical assessment of grave disability and we also mentioned um, looking at various ways in which you might address the grave disability in the outpatient system. And we mentioned at the end, we talked about two people, Frank and Angela. So we're gonna revisit those cases. And each of um, those people, Frank and Angela, are gonna kind of take us on a different journey in involuntary care. Uh, so we can have some idea of what it might be like for you guys. So we're gonna start with Frank. Frank is a 54-year-old man with, known psych with no known sorry, psychiatric history and diabetes. Uh, we know that he isolates himself from others and mumbles to himself. He's usually partly naked or wearing weird objects. He urinates in a bucket that he keeps close to his head. He refuses to take his diabetes medication. But um, you and your team have been working and actually were able to convince Frank to go into a hotel room and he agreed to start medication and you used the street psychiatrist to see him and start him on medication. But unfortunately, uh, a few days into his hotel stay, you notice that he's been sharing his hotel room with a woman who's been giving him methamphetamine. And now you notice he's more disorganized and more paranoid than ever. And you also see that he has a new infection on his leg and there's pus and it's starting to spread up his leg and he's refusing treatment for it. Uh, you've, you've done your best. It's been uh, quite a few years that you've been working with him but this street treatment approach is not working and you're wondering what's the next step. Um, so uh, I hope perhaps you all are thinking we might use a 5150 for this gentleman. Um, but I do want to paint for you a picture of what's been going on uh, in the hospital so that you can understand uh, sort of where we're at today 
and how this might impact your your clients and also the way that you deal with your clients in the outreach. Um, so uh, I'm sure that you are all aware, if you've been watching the news at all, that there are a lot of fires going on and there's a big fire in Northern California, which they said currently the amount of territory that the fire in Northern California is burning is actually more territory than all of the fires in the last year combined. Um, so, you know, we're, we're sort of used to this ratcheting up of, of more terrible fires every year. And that analogy sort of works for the hospitals. Um, our current LA County mental health system, especially on the inpatient involuntary care side is really on fire. Um, and I can say that after 20 years of working in LA County hospitals, it's been slowly going, getting worse and worse and worse. And, uh, you know, truly right now is sort of an unprecedented time. And um, I think that's really going to impact the way that you use 5150s going in the future. So um, why is it so bad? Um, First of all, I think the important thing is to understand that there's been a shortage of inpatient beds and a shortage of locked long-term residential facilities. And what that means is that there's a bottleneck that backs all the way up into the emergency room. So uh, it just in the last year or two, we've had just insane um, volume in the psychiatric emergency rooms to the point where we're even beyond our maximum number of beds. Uh, and similarly for the inpatient um, units, that then backs up because the, there's not enough um, locked residential beds for them to send their patients to quickly. So uh, we're dealing with a lot of volume here and um, it's all due to uh, sort of a lack of resources as opposed to say more sick patients. Um, the ODR effect that I like to call it basically means that uh, the Office of Diversion and Reentry has done an amazing job um, of educating the jail system and encouraging them to either place their clients on 5150s or conserve them. And um, certainly those are some of our sickest patients and I applaud their efforts. Unfortunately, that has sort of led to an overflow on the um, involuntary care side. So we have a, a big backup of patients because in addition to our sort of regular volume that we might get from police and ambulance, we're also getting a ton of patients more than our usual uh, on 5150s from jails and also more conserved patients or patients on temporary conservatorships, which means they're just on their way to being conserved um, in our emergency rooms and inpatient units. And so in the last about year and a half, it got to the point where our inpatient units were sort of uh, over, overextended by having an enormous number of these conserved patients that came from jail. And um, unfortunately, a lot of these patients uh, required a higher level of care. And when you're looking for a high level of care, whether that's um, an IMD bed or a state hospital bed, the wait can be somewhere between six months and a year. So what's happening is 
there are a whole bunch of beds taken up by conserved patients waiting for these, these um, few and far between beds. And as a result, the actual number of beds that we have to hospitalize anybody else shrank like crazy. So for instance, um, I'm currently at the All of You Psychiatric Emergency Room. And for a while, we had about six beds, um, only six beds out of 25 that we could actually put new patients in and discharge and keep rotating new patients in. So it really sort of reached a crisis point. Uh, and then, of course, COVID hit. Um, and COVID, unfortunately, has, has sort of really highlighted um, the problem that we've been having for a long time that maybe we could kind of hide and now we just can't hide anymore. Uh, so essentially, what there's a new policy that when COVID came to a, in a, into effect, they came up with a countywide LA County hospital policy as opposed to any of the private hospitals, which said that um, any patient on an inpatient psychiatric unit has to be able to be discharged within three days so that should we have a COVID surge and we need to recalculate and retool all our units and change the way we're taking care of patients and turn units into COVID units. Um, so we have to be able to get rid of our patients really quickly. And unfortunately, conserved patients who are waiting for those high level, higher levels of care, as I mentioned, six months to a year, uh, cannot be discharged within three days. Um, so essentially what we have done is taken all the conserved patients that we had in the county hospitals and sent them to a handful of private psychiatric hospitals who agreed to take our conserved patients. Uh, so what that means effectively is we are definitely not conserving patients anymore in the county hospitals um, from, like a, from the beginning. And in fact, we are having very few conserved patients on the inpatient county units except for perhaps, let's say we know a conserved patient can be discharged back home or the board and care that they're living in is willing to take them back and we're sure about that, then we could put them on the inpatient unit. But besides that, um, we've really limited our numbers. And usually county hospitals were sort of the last bastion where you knew you could uh, get a patient conserved or admit a conserved patient for a long period of time. And that unfortunately has gone away with COVID. Um, so as a result, it's sort of a strange experience, I think for all of us, we actually have um, some patients in our psychiatric emergency rooms, which we're sort of treating like inpatients, we're actually keeping them for weeks and weeks uh, because we cannot send them to inpatient units, either private or our county hospitals. Um, namely, of course, COVID positive patients are, can't go anywhere. And so they're also basically having their psychiatric inpatient stay in our emergency room. Uh, so it's a, it's a pretty bizarre experience, to be honest, for all of us to be having patients that long in a setting that's really not meant for long-term care. So I sort of preface this all so that you kind of understand what the situation is 
and can understand the background of what's happening and what might happen when you perhaps put a patient, a gravely dis disabled client on a 5150 and send them to the hospital. So um, essentially, because things have changed so drastically, it's more important now than ever to understand the different systems of care, to really understand not only the voluntary systems of care, but the involuntary systems of care, so that you can help guide your client from beginning to end um, and get them better outcomes. Uh, perhaps only using the hospital and the 5150 as a tool in a set of tools that you'll use as opposed to sort of the end game where you used to be able to send somebody to the hospital and and get them conserved and get them placed in a housing setting and it was sort of you know one one-stop shop it's just uh, unfortunately it's not going to be like that uh, for a while for however long uh, this COVID policy lasts. So what I'm asking you to do is think differently about how you provide services and hope that you can help navigate the system better for your clients. And so I am dubbing you all <laughs> client navigators uh, so that you can hopefully um, with this lecture learn a bit more about how you can help your patient through the mental health system. So how to be a successful navigator, we're gonna talk about all these points. Um, <clears throat> first of all, you wanna think about what your goal is for the client and their 5150, specifically how you might use that 5150, understanding the options for involuntary treatment, how to write a 5150 that sticks, how to communicate with the psyche ER and also with the inpatient team, how to prepare for discharge from an inpatient unit and also how to follow your client when they're in a new housing setting so that you can be sure it's a good fit. So um, what is our goal? Let's sort of re go back in time and remember Frank and his diabetes and his infection and he's, he's in this hotel room and not doing so well. What's our goal for Frank and what is our goal for the 5150? Um, do we want to get him ultimately into housing? Do we want him just to be well enough to be safe on the streets or perhaps well enough for drug and alcohol rehab? Uh, or do we want him well enough for street treatment or medical treatment? And that's uh, a little bit more complicated, but we'll, we'll get to that. Okay, so understanding options for involuntary treatment. So Frank never stays in the hospital long. I'm sure a story you can all relate to. Um, I suspect, you know, just sort of imagining Frank getting to the hospital if he his urine tests positive for methamphetamine um, and he doesn't have any formal psych history, maybe the assumption is gonna be all of these behaviors are from methamphetamine. So he's not gonna stay very long in the hospital. Um, so what are the things that you might um, notice that are going on behind the scenes as to why it's so difficult to get Frank into an inpatient psychiatric unit? So um, these are, this is sort of a list of unspoken rules, but nevertheless, these are very rule. I mean, sorry, these are very real, which make it in virtually impossible for us to get them into private psychiatric hospitals. 
um, and often uh, just add to the long waiting list of people who are waiting for county inpatient units because uh, there are a lot of uh, clients who end up with uh, any one of these on the list and maybe several of them on the list. And so we know the only place they can go is a county inpatient unit. So our, our waiting list to even get into the inpatient unit is crazy long. So if you are wheelchair bound, if the client has a broken bone and a cast, if they are a registered sex offender, if they have pregnancy at any stage, but especially if they're more than six months along, uh, developmental delay, unfortunately, is like the kiss of death. We pretty much can't get anybody who has regional center written in their note or on their 5150 anywhere into a, in a private psychiatric hospital. Also things that make it difficult, dementia and Alzheimer's, traumatic brain injuries, those basically make it impossible to get them anywhere. Uh, and those are considered medical problems instead of psychiatric problems, uh, which is why that's a challenge. Uh, also, if somebody is, weighs more than 100 pounds or if they have an active medical problem that requires IV medication, intravenous, so it means they're, they're going to put a line in their arm and send the medication through their veins. Uh, so those make it really difficult to get our patients admitted. And so oftentimes those patients will linger in the emergency room for a really long time. Um, and I say all this with the caveat that, of course, none of this is um, right or good, but this is the situation that we've been dealing with for a long time. And I think it would be helpful if you guys understand some of this stuff that goes on behind the scenes. So what do we do with Frank um, if he's going to be in the hospital for short, for short term? So definitely longer, I mean, sorry, shorter than a month. Um, so there are various options. And what I would encourage you guys to do is sort of think ahead and anticipate that perhaps uh, the patient that you're sending to the hospital will in fact have a short hospitalization. And so you can start to think about some of these options that I've listed and in fact, apply for some of these before you even do the 5150 so that you can be prepared and have sort of a safety net and a backup for what happens when Frank is released to the from the hospital too quickly and perhaps he's, he's really too sick to go back to the hotel. Um, so you might consider a residential rehab. We know uh, Frank has a methamphetamine problem, as do many of our clients. Uh, so perhaps a residential rehab would be the next step, but that does take a while. So if you can apply for that ahead of time, again, before you even write the 5150, before you send them to the emergency room, um, Oftentimes, residential rehabs have a pretty high bar um, for wellness. If they're too psychotic, and I see this all the time, they send them right back to the emergency room. Uh, so you want Frank to be stable enough for residential rehab. Perhaps you could buy more time um, if you were to apply for a crisis residential treatment program or a medical respite bed. Uh, both of those can really extend the amount of time that somebody is housed and in treatment. Um, 
they're both voluntary, but those are things that I would encourage you to learn about and discuss with your supervisor and perhaps apply for again ahead of time before they even get to the emergency room um, so that you can be prepared uh, for a short discharge. And then also finally, um, you could consider sending uh, your patient from the psych ER to a puff bed. Uh, we call them puff beds, but Technically, it's psychiatric health facility, uh, which is, all these names are very confusing. Um, what we are going to give you is a link with a handout uh, with some real basic um, details about all these different levels of care. So you can kind of have an idea of what kind of client would be best for what kind of setting. Um, it's certainly not a... Um, an exhaustive explanation, but I think it might help and it's it's something that that might help you along the way that that I just don't have time to go into all the details about all these different levels. Um, and also finally, maybe what you want to do for Frank is just get that leg infection treated. Um, and once that leg infection is treated, then you can continue to work with him in the hotel. Uh, to get him stable and then, you know, figure out whatever your goal is for him in the future. So any questions after the, the, this piece? We have a comment from Nick saying that it's hard to hear the realities of the situation. Oh, I know. Yeah. Oh, and we actually do have some more questions trickling in. Um, we have one asking from Paula, how many people are on the waiting list? Um, you mean for an inpatient, for a county inpatient bed? You know, it changes every day. Um, there's, there's no set number. Um, just to, it's just sort of, I say that to explain, you know, your, your, your client might be in the emergency room for a week and a half before they're actually sent to the inpatient unit because that's how long it takes for them to get a bed um, on the inpatient unit, but each emergency room has their, is attached to their own inpatient unit, and each inpatient unit has a different length of waiting time, um, and it's completely dependent on the day as to how long that waiting time is, uh, but definitely days, sometimes weeks, uh, is, is the sort of um, basic period that we're waiting for inpatient beds. And I'm saying that in the county facilities only. Uh, this person's asking, how does a current conserved patient affect the hospital's decision to admit? So if somebody is conserved, um, we cannot, dis by law, we cannot discharge them to the street uh, or to a homeless shelter. So uh, we have to stabilize them for whatever level of care that the public guardian or the conservator, if it's like a family member, has decided that they want for that patient. Uh, so if they're going to go to a board and care, um, they'll be in the hospital for a shorter period of time. If they want them to be admitted to like a state hospital, which is a year wait, um, I, I can tell you that we have uh, negotiated down a lot of levels of care because we know that we can't possibly keep someone in the hospital for a year at this time. Um, I do not know what the private hospitals who are taking a lot of conserved patients are doing. 
Uh, I mean, every, every patient is different depending on where the, the planned discharge is for them. Great, and then um, I think there's one more that came in um, from Maureen. She's asking this question, right? What's in store regarding enlarging inpatient resources? Yes. Um, yeah, and she adds, we have an aging population. And it's yeah. not hard to imagine that a homeless, mentally ill person who is able to take care of self in earlier years may become more disabled also with age. So, yeah. No, you know, I, I have to tell you that I share your frustration. Um, it is really uh, sometimes quite dispiriting to be working in the ER and realizing that you have nowhere to put people who really need uh, some kind of option that's not going back to the streets. Uh, there has definitely been talk. We, I know we did get funding for more inpatient beds, uh, or there was talk about that, but since COVID, I know a lot of funding is going to change, and I don't know where those, um, whether those, those committed funds are going to disappear uh, now that the county is really struggling with resources. So your guess is, frankly, is as good as mine at this point. But you are right. We definitely need more. Is that our five minutes up, Steph? Well, I could just, if you, I can add just a little bit to that. Like, I know both on the acute side and then the subacute side, I know Dr. Sharon is very invested in bringing more resources on board, you know, um, and that started, you know, as, as you were saying, Sharon, that that started long before COVID and kind of pulling those down. Um, and right now, as far as I understand that the, you know, the subacute, um, as well as kind of the recuperative care just on hold till we get through COVID and kind of see where our financial state lands. But I think we're all struggling in that regard. Yeah. Thanks, Latina. I appreciate that. Okie doke. We're going to go on and the, there will be more pauses for questions. So don't worry if you didn't get yours answered. Uh, okay, so what do we do about Frank's diabetes and his leg infection? Um, so just to sort of back up and look at what research tells us, we know that people who are homeless, in fact, have multiple diseases. Uh, partly that's because they're exposed to extreme weather, lots of different injuries. They have higher risk of experiencing violence on the streets. And of course, they're more likely to get contagious diseases like COVID-19, pneumonia, tuberculosis, hepatitis B and C, skin infections, scabies, lice. I know probably a lot of you are familiar with these uh, in your clients. Uh, also, the thing to remember is that they are also getting the same illnesses that everyone does in the general population, but at much more severe stages. So their diabetes, their high blood pressure, their heart disease is just going to be a lot worse. So there was a study that was published in the Journal of American Medical Association that looked at for 10 years that followed 445 unsheltered homeless adults in Boston. And they found that their death rate was actually 10 times higher than the general Massachusetts population and nearly three times higher than homeless adults who were sleeping in shelters. 
so we all know that um, in many ways, these clients living on the street are slowly dying from all these factors. But unfortunately, technically a 5150 is not for involuntary treatment of medical problems, and that would include dementia because dementia is considered a medical problem. So if you have someone on a 5150 and you also need to make sure that they get medical treatment, really the only way to force it upon someone is with a seven point letter that you get and then you have to bring it to the judge and get the judge's approval. And that takes somewhere between one and two months. So it is not a fast process. We hardly ever use it anymore uh, because it takes so long. So if it's a medical problem that's gonna be, uh, that's gonna kill somebody in one to two months or, or lead to some horrible consequence, we can always have the option of, of deeming this medical problem emergency. You get two doctors to sign off and then you can treat their medical problem um, if, even if the client is refusing. But to say that and decide that is a lot different than actually doing it because of course you could you know, put somebody to sleep for a little while so that you can stick the uh, IV in their arm and give, start the antibiotics. But most antibiotics are going to be you know, seven days and so you're not gonna keep someone sedated for seven days and, and you've got to sort of work with them and figure out how are you gonna keep them doing well. Oftentimes that you have to be really um, on their psychiatric symptoms because if you can treat their psychiatric symptoms, it's a lot easier to convince them to get medical treatment. So what are you gonna do when you have a client who has a medical problem? So I would say if you are concerned about their mental well-being, go ahead and do 5150. But on that 5150, when you point out that they have a leg infection, what you wanna do is talk about the psychiatric reason that they're refusing treatment. So for instance, if Frank um, has decided that he can't get his leg infection treated because he's convinced that the doctors are going to inject him with poison, put that in your 5150. And so what we will do in the emergency room is try to address his psychiatric illness and sort of uh, parallel, in parallel, we will treat his medical problem depending on his willingness to participate. Uh, also, if you can avoid writing dementia on your 5150, please do so because some doctors will see that 5150 and say, oh, dementia, that's not a 5150 and immediately cancel the 5150. Um, now, really what's supposed to happen is, is you don't know their diagnosis usually whether they have dementia. You just might notice that they have memory problems. Um, so the best thing to do is get them to the emergency room so that we can actually do everything that's required to make a diagnosis of dementia, which usually requires um, various lab tests and also scans of the brain and then some um, like quizzes where you're, you're asking patients questions. So we put all that information to make a dementia diagnosis and oftentimes we will send those patients from a psych ER to a medical ER to get all of that worked up. Uh, but the 
key to keeping them in the hospital is, is that the doctor and psyche are has to write the phrase, this patient does not have dispositional capacity, which is like a fancy way of saying they don't have the ability to decide where they're being discharged, which means that the medical emergency room where they're getting their work up can't just discharge them back to the streets, uh, or perhaps maybe they've been admitted to an inpatient unit by this point, and they also cannot discharge them back to the streets. Because usually by that time, the psych ER has actually discontinued the hold, but when everybody has the understanding that the patient has dementia and can't make uh, good decisions about their care, uh, that's, that's an important part of the understanding is that that phrase has been used um, that they don't have dispositional capacity. Uh, and unfortunately, sometimes people end up in a psych ER and the doctor's not familiar with that phrase. And I have seen, unfortunately, demented people end up back on the streets. And so it's a matter of, of sort of educating enough doctors to understand this. Also, perhaps your patient will end up on a medical unit. If Frank, let's say, needs IV antibiotics for his leg infection, especially if it went to the bone, um, when people who have mental illness and are on 5150s are on medical units, they can be cared for by a medical team and then consulted by a psychiatry team, but oftentimes those patients get discharged really quickly. Once those seven days of antibiotics are up, they are gonna discharge the patient. Medical units have a very, um, frankly, low tolerance for people with mental illness, and they're always trying to, frankly, get out everybody fast, but especially uh, patients with mental illness. And so that is something that if you know your patient is being admitted to a medical ward, you wanna prepare for a quick discharge. And oftentimes, you might not even be notified that they're being discharged. So be prepared for that and get ready with the backup if you can. Okay, so writing a hold that sticks. Um, the thing to remember about a hold is that you're making an argument for why this client can't keep living in these conditions with this kind of behavior. So a grave disability hold the best argument is actually going to be using the worst examples of behaviors and living conditions. And I know that that sort of goes against a lot of training when, when you're taught to recognize the client's strengths, but that is not the time to be using that information. You really wanna focus on what's been going on with the client over the months or perhaps years that you've been taking care of them. So you always want to include the worst outcomes of their past behavior. So in that second part of the hold on the back where it asks for their history, this is where you wanna say, you know, they've had a lifetime of 30 psychiatric hospitalizations and they've been in a Tescadero hospital and Metro State Hospital. Um, you want to also mention, perhaps they don't have any hospitalizations, but perhaps uh, the paramedics and the fire department have been called 50 times in the last year for Frank. Um, put that on your put that on your 5150 because that is really relevant information that tells us how poorly Frank is doing out on the streets. 
Um, if it's relevant, include the number of years that you've been working with this client and what kind of services they've refused. Um, it's especially helpful to uh, include the lack of contact. So if you've got somebody who has no hospitalizations, no incarcerations, they're not on the DMH radar, they've never been to a DMH clinic, maybe they don't even have Medi-Cal or Medicare, um, that tells us something because maybe that's someone who's actually been functioning up until a year ago and now they've, they're demented and they're on the streets and that's why we don't have any record. Or perhaps um, they have a really significant psychiatric history in uh, New Jersey and they randomly came out here to California and landed and we don't know all of that history from the other states. Sometimes we find those things out later as time goes on. Also, please share any felony convictions, murder, rape, assault, arson, especially if it's linked to their mental illness. That's extremely helpful, especially for the providers because anyone with a history of past violence, even though they might not be violent in this moment, are a higher risk for violence. And that's really helpful for the staff who are working with the client on the inpatient unit or in the psych ER. Um, and, and so all of this history is really important and I don't want you to skip putting it on the hold, but you do have to remember that when you're writing a hold, you actually have to be right, seeing the client at the time that you're writing the hold. So you can carry all this information with you and include that in the hold, but then you also need to say what, you know, what they look like in that moment. And behavior descriptions are the most powerful that you can ever include on a hold. Um, so sometimes they might say something bizarre or disturbing. Um, go ahead and include that quote. Or sometimes we've, some of the most convincing patients I've gotten are um, when they, when the caseworkers or social workers come in and they bring a photo of where the client came from. So I've seen um, like a sleeping bag with poop everywhere and rats. Um, something like that. I mean, you know, a picture is a thousand, worth a thousand words. Um, the point to remember is that you're painting a picture of someone who is very ill and not surviving on the streets. So when you're thinking about what kind of details to, to include, think about their body, their clothing, their behaviors, their thinking, their speech, and their environment or their neighborhood. A lot of these details can help guide you in the things that you wanna include on the hold. And the thing about the hold is we don't actually have all that much space, right? So um, keep that in mind as you're writing it. Uh, a housing plan, if you have already gotten uh, abetted a residential rehab or you've already secured a medical respite bed for this patient that's enormously helpful for us and will help us to frankly hold on to the client longer um, also in that part in the in the back part of the hold where you can write contact information uh, please you know, perhaps the, the clinical lead person is writing the hold, but try and include somebody else on the team if you can, another outreach worker uh, and their phone number, because sometimes the doctor is going to call the, the people on this 5150 only once, and you want them to get one of you guys who can give more background information about what's been going on with the client. So that's really helpful. Um, 
also just a reminder in case you're not aware, I think you are, but I'm not positive. Uh, voluntary patients are basically impossible to place anywhere. So uh, just keep that in mind, even if you do have somebody who's willing to get treatment. Um, try not to write GD only holds. And I say this because unfortunately what GD only holds do are basically they put handcuffs on the psych ER providers and it's virtually impossible for us to get them on an inpatient unit, either a county inpatient unit or a private inpatient unit. It has to do with, it's really honestly stupid rules about how Medi-Cal reimburses for grave disability, uh, but the point is it leads to us sort of being paralyzed. So if we get a GD hold, you know, they're almost guaranteed to have to do any stabilization in the emergency room for a short period of time because we just cannot get them admitted anywhere. Um, also, because there's so little space on the hold, you do not have to write does not have a plan for self-care or is not able to provide for food, shelter, and clothing. We know the definition of GD. You don't have to quote it back to us. You've checked off the GD box. Um, what we need to know is why they're GD. Uh, so save yourself some space. Just take those words out. Um, also, a psychiatric diagnosis is not really important to put on your 5150. Uh, sometimes you have somebody with an MIS that's like a mile long, and so they have bipolar, schizophrenia, PTSD, they have like a thousand diagnoses, and you don't know which one it is. That's okay. You don't have to know. We're not asking for what their diagnosis is, just knowing that they have, you know, a history of clinic and hospitalization care uh, is enough, or psychiatric care. Um, or if they don't have an MIS at all, that's fine too. Um, again, we're, we're not sort of basing our decision on what their diagnosis is. And frankly, we make a new diagnosis when we're evaluating them. Questions? I'm sorry, I'm going so fast. <laughs> yeah, so we have a question from Nicole. Uh, about when looking for hospital beds, do DMH staff directly call hospitals to see if there is an available bed? Um, I'm probably not the best person to answer this question. I know that you guys can find beds at private psych hospitals, or you can call in to get a MAC number and then get them sent to any of the county psych ERs. Does anybody, does any of the administration wanna chime in. Go ahead, Latina. Did oh, I'm sorry. Okay, so generally speaking, oh, let me turn on my video here. So it, it's very much as you said, we um, generally call the hospital directly, if it's a private hospital, the admissions department, and you know, give the information and they will give us a bed. Um, and um, in situations where we're admitting to a county hospital, it's exactly as you said, we, we uh, get the MAC. Okay, next question. There's some follow-up to this oh, one. Yeah. <laughs> um, do most clients link to private or county psych hospitals? Um, we, yeah, it totally depends. Go ahead. Totally depends. I mean, we generally try, if, if someone has insurance, we always start with a private hospital. Um, we really kind of reserve the county hospitals as kind of last resort um, for uh, clients that are, that are indigent. Um, there are some special circumstances that we might work directly with a county hospital, um, but 
I would say as a general rule, if somebody has um, insurance, we go to a private hospital as a starting point always and, and exhaust that, um, those options. And then this is a tough question. I don't know if people know how many county and private psychiatric hospitals are there in Los Angeles. I don't know. I do not know, but we do have a list. I don't know if Linda's on it. I apologize. That's a great question. We actually. Oh, this have is a Connie. List. Hi, Connie. Hi. It's uh, I think uh, 44. Thanks, Connie. 44 designated facilities. Right. And the thing I would actually just point out is that there's a difference between standalone psychiatric facilities and facilities that have both medical and psychiatric care. So when you get someone like Frank who has um, mental illness symptoms and an infection, you want to make sure that you're sending someone to a facility that has medical treatment as well. Thank you for that clarification. So Gabriella has a question of if would GD and danger to others slash danger to self work stick best? Like a combination of the two, I think. You know, it, it actually doesn't matter. Um, it's just that the GD only alone, that's, that's the only problem. Uh, so I would say use whatever criteria best fits your client. Um, whether that's DTS or DTO. Um, I would say that uh, unfortunately the problem with grave disability clients is that, I don't know how any other way to put it, but they're essentially competing for space with people who are also incredibly violent or maybe they're banging their head on the walls while they're in the in the hospital or they're taking off their gowns and running out the door all the time those patients you know tend to stay a lot longer than somebody who is quietly psychotic and and maybe not showing all those behaviors and that is not to say that they are any less deserving of treatment or any less sick but when you've got to choose between the quiet patient and the guy who's you know assaulting your staff every day unfortunately it's it's the um sort of the loud patients that, that get the care more often and longest. Brenda has a question of when you say write, why are they GD? What types of information are you looking for? Other than what I just <laughs> asked for? Um, you, you know, everybody's different. You know, there's no, there's, there's an inexhaustible list of things that might be going on with your client on the streets. Um, and, and, and there's no magic formula. It's really, we, we want you to tell the truth about what go, what's going on with them, but to paint the picture with the details. Um, oftentimes that's really what's missing are those details about their body or their clothing or their behavior or their thinking. Um, that you, 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 I'm sure, frankly, knowing, knowing all these clients that you're taking care of, most of them meet the criteria for grave disability. It's just a matter of how and when you want to use that tool. Yeah, a lot of like succinct descriptive behaviors, <laughs> very brief and tight. Um, and for our last question, uh, would police contacts be helpful when writing a GD hold? 
You know, police contacts are happen when you're helpful when you're writing any kind of hold. Um, sometimes, and I unfortunately didn't have time to talk about this in my lecture, I had to cut this out, but um, having a, a police connection is super helpful because um, if you know this person and you've dealt with them and you know they're friendly to mental illness and your population, uh, and you know that you might be able to work with them and, and be able to get the patient uh, on a gurney in a humane and thoughtful way, uh, definitely using your contacts is the best way to do that. You know, if you have any concerns that when you, when you call the ambulance that your client might run or, or get defensive or freak out in, every, in whatever way that might be and you might need police assistance. Uh, the one thing I would encourage you to do, whether it's a friend, uh, a, a, somebody that you know that's a police officer that you've worked with before or whether it's a stranger, you wanna let them know this hold, this GD hold, is so that we can get them to a medical respite bed or a crisis residential bed, or it's gonna help us get them into housing. If they know that that's the goal to get them to the hospital with this hold, I think you're gonna have a, a, an easier time of doing that. And it's all just about communicating. Okay, um, we're gonna keep moving on. Uh, we'll have questions later on, time for questions. So just to understand on your journey of navigation and you're going to bring your patient to the emergency room, your work doesn't end when you drop them off in the emergency room. And part of that is communicating with the psych ER. And I know that can be extremely challenging, so I'm gonna give you some hints and tips and hopefully that will help. Um, Every doctor's different, and some doctors don't call collaterals, others do. I was trained in a, in a, at Harbor where they drill into us, you've got to call collaterals. So I always do, but I have many colleagues that don't. So if you can get a hold of the psychiatrist, uh, the best way to do that is to follow up on the same day that your client arrives in the emergency room, or if they get there like, you know, four o'clock in the afternoon or six o'clock or eight o'clock at night, then you wanna call the next morning. Um, and the best thing to do is if you're calling on the same day that your client arrived in the emergency room, you wanna wait about two hours because even though they get in the ER at 10 a.m., they're probably not going to actually be seen by the psychiatrist until an hour, an hour and a half, sometimes many hours, depending on how busy they are later. So it's a lot more helpful for the psychiatrist if they've seen the patient and then they're hearing your information. Uh, it's not very helpful if you're calling before we've even seen the patient because uh, we haven't even opened a note or anything like that. Um, so when you call the psych ER, go ahead and ask to speak the to the psychiatrist. And the way you might want to frame it is say, hi, I'm the social worker, caseworker that's been working with Frank for five years. And I'd like to tell, of course, you want to use the full name, Frank Smith, whatever. Uh, I'd like to tell the psychiatrist some important details about him. Um, I understand that there are times when, you know, 
that information doesn't get filtered down to the psychiatrist or they're too busy or they're too lazy. I mean, there's a thousand reasons why you might not get through, but please do try. And I would have actually said before COVID, show up, but um, COVID has sort of changed everything and basically all hospital rules say that, that um, you know, we, we can't really accept visitors. Uh, we might be willing to talk to somebody a staff person, uh, but it's a lot harder. So I, I'd say at this point, just call. Um, and when you're talking to the psychiatrist, ask them that you be notified when your client is transferred or admitted or discharged. Now, sometimes your client is going to be transferred at like, uh, you know, midnight, in which case there's probably not going to be anybody who's going to be notifying you. Uh, if it's on a different shift than when you spoke with the daytime psychiatrist and then they get transferred on the evening shift. It's not a full, it's not a foolproof system, but it's um, definitely something that's appropriate to ask for. And the thing you also need to understand is when patients end up in a county psychiatric emergency room, they are immediately being worked on by our caseworkers to try and admit them out to a private psych hospital. So anybody who has Medicaid, Medicare, private insurance, or sometimes even uninsured patients, we get these special beds called short Doyle beds. Uh, we work hard to get them to other hospitals because we know that the number of patients who can only go to our own inpatient county hospital are so, it's like the list is so long, uh, you know, here's a pregnant person waiting or a sex offender and we know no other hospital will take them. So that's why we try so hard to send everybody who doesn't have fall under those categories out to a private hospital. So as a result, as I've mentioned, I think patients are waiting longer in the ERs than ever before. Um, it used to be, <laughs> I'm so old that I can remember when uh, we almost never started anybody on a 14-day hold. And now it's like, uh, we do it all day long, multiple 14-day holds. We do 14-day hearings. We do Reese hearings. I mean, this used to be unheard of in the psych ER. It's like we're our own little inpatient unit at this point because they're waiting in the ER for so long. So just so you understand, there's an enormous amount of pressure to discharge people, to make room for new patients because we literally run out of beds sometimes. It's kind of horrific when that happens. Um, and also just a, just a reminder that clients with a predetermined discharge plan. So if we know that we've got a crisis residential bed for this patient when they're gonna leave the hospital, they're much likely, more likely to be admitted. And the reason for that is with a limited number of resources, if you have someone coming off the streets and you're gonna get them well and then send them back on the streets when you're pretty sure they're gonna stop their medication and go back to you know, their previous state, um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to justify expending those resources when perhaps you know that this homeless client is going to have a bed at a crisis residential program so you know that your efforts to get them well will actually lead to sort of a maintenance of wellness as opposed to sort of going back down and um, unfortunately getting sick all over again on the streets. Okay, so following your client, 
when they're in the hospital. So why would you follow your clients in the hospital? Uh, so I'm gonna share with you a video. My name is Abraham Clemente Jr. I wanted a different life. Be independent again. I didn't need them to come around once a week or every day bothering me. I'm an adult. So Abraham, how's, how long have you been here for? I don't know. You don't know? For eternity. For eternity? I don't know. I see people move in, people move out. It looks like you might have an infection of some kind in your finger there. Oh, because I banged it and it showed up. And then it started breathing pus and everything. When was that? A couple of months back. It's been like that for a couple months? <coughs> yeah. What's that? That's dog The dog walked in here and took a there. Oh, man. Why do you let it sit out like that, Abraham? Because I forgot to clean it up. Can I feed the rats? <laughs> do you feel like you need somebody to help you? No. I interfere, I do it myself. You don't feel like you need that? No, I don't need that. Yeah. I don't trust him. Um, he put a chicken in the oven and he totally forgot about the chicken and it was a lot of smoke. I live in the third floor, you know? I'm lucky I got a fire escape, but I, it just doesn't, it's not about the fire, it's just like, I mean, it, about himself. Ain't nobody there with him, nobody. Mr. Clemente. Yeah, you feel dehydrated? You no, feel, no, you no. feel fine? No, I'm okay. fine. I'm okay. fine. I still want EMS to come check you out, okay? We're Why just a little concerned for you. Alright, I appreciate that, Mr. Clemente. Yeah, I'm glad you're coming to check on me. You know, I'm here all alone. I don't abandon this place. I want to get out of here. I want to live like a human being. Yeah. And be human, you know, not be in the jungle. 
Abraham. Mm -hmm. You feel dizzy or short of breath or anything like that? Any pain anywhere? No, no pain. Yeah. I remember, I've seen you before. I remember you. You know what month it is? Uh, uh, no. The sugar's a little high, it's 209. Squeeze that on your head. We're going to the hospital? Yeah, we're going to have to go to the hospital get looked, checked out, okay? All right. A lot of people feel like, who are we to say, you are not well enough, you shouldn't be living on your own. Who are we to infringe on somebody's freedom? Other people say, well, that's just a cop-out. Are you giving me my right to fail? Or are you letting me cling to my right to be free to such an extent that it's gonna be the death of me? back on my own. I can live like that again. Nobody to talk to. Nobody to check on me. I feel lonely, worthless, unwanted, unloved. I don't want to live like that again. I'm gonna fail. I don't wanna fail. Okay, um, so I wanted to share that video because uh, a lot of the decisions that are made about what kind of setting your client is going to go into after discharge, those conversations are had on the inpatient unit or sometimes the psych ER if they're, if they're being hospitalized in the psych ER. Um, and it's really important that you guys who know your clients best be part of that conversation, if at all possible, uh, because some people, you've seen what they look like at baseline. You know what they look like when they're well medicated, and you know what they look like when they're not well medicated. Um, what, what level of functioning they have and what setting would be best for them. I think it's really important for you guys to be a part of that conversation and then also to follow your client once they've been placed in that housing situation because perhaps you might discover that it's actually not the right fit like with Clemente, that Mr. Clemente, that was clearly um, not the right fit for him. Um, so uh, let me just say at the outset, I know it's insanely hard to get a hold of inpatient teams. I myself have tried when I was in the outpatient, when I was with an office of diversion, when I'm in the ER, getting hold of people on inpatient unit, it's like, you know, CIA level security sometimes. It can be pretty challenging. Uh, so I share these tips with you, not as a definitive, yes, you'll get to speak to the inpatient team, but it's a way to try. Um, so I would encourage when you call the inpatient team, um, or the inpatient unit to ask to speak with the social worker. That is usually um, 
the person on the team who's most likely to call you back and coordinate with you. And just you, if they have issues, you might want to remind them coordination of care is not a HIPAA violation. That's what our healthcare system is supposed to be doing is coordinating care so that these clients get the best outcomes possible. And one way you might sweeten the deal is to offer to help with disposition. Disposition is just a fancy word for discharge, like where they're gonna go when they're discharged. So if perhaps you have access to that new system to get board and cares, um, and you can help them um, find a board and care for your client. That's going to go a long way if you have access to, to resources that they don't and, and that you're willing to share some of those resources because housing and where we're going to put the patient when they leave the hospital is one of the biggest issues. Um, and if your voice can be a part of that conversation, all the better. Also, you know, you would, it would behoove you to check in on your client and see where they're at because sometimes patients get a lot better and sometimes they don't get very much, they don't get better at all. And so understanding where they're at when they're in the hospital will help you decide what's the best um, housing for them when they leave the hospital. So what about conservatorship? Now that I basically told you it's almost impossible to do. Um, we're going to go back to Angela, the case of Angela. And I'm just going to give you a little reminder of who she is. She's a 24-year-old woman with schizoaffective disorder. She does have prior psychiatric hospitalizations. And she's a former foster care youth. Um, you've been noticing over the past few months that she's starting to believe that fresh food is contaminated and she's lost 10 pounds just in this last month and she looks dangerously thin. You notice that she walks into the street and yells at cars when they're stopped. She's been refusing her medication for her schizoaffective disorder and she even refused to go to a hotel or any kind of shelter that you offer her because she says, Quote, I have to keep watch out here for demons. So you couldn't get her into a hotel. You've tried these options. You've been watching her and you're really worried because now she's not even eating the packaged food you bring her. So what might happen in this uh, uh new world um, of, of hospitalizations and conservatorships. The bonus of conservatorship is it's the only way to get uh, someone into a locked residential treatment facility for a year or longer. Um, conserved clients cannot be legally discharged to the street or homeless shelter, so that um, certainly allays concerns about them going back onto the street. Um, and often it's the best way to treat people who have severe anosognosia. That's just a fancy word for it. That is a symptom of mental illness that basically makes clients blind to their illness. So if you remember the vid video we watched with Mr. Clemente and he's got flies and dog poop and rotting food, um, He's not doing well and he says, no, no, everything's fine. I don't need any help. That is the symptom of anosognosia. And sometimes the only way to overcome a client's blindness to their own illness and their own symptoms is to get, conserved, get them conserved so that you can make sure that they can have treatment.
So going back to Angela, maybe you put her on a, a 5150, she gets in the hospital for six days and then she's discharged to the streets. And then you do a second 5150. She's also again in the hospital for six days and then goes back to the street. And then maybe you do a third 5150. And this one lasts a little bit longer, three weeks, but then again, she's sent back to the streets. So you know, you've known Angela for a long time. You know she's chronically disabled. I'm sorry, chronically gravely disabled. And she meets criteria for conservatorship. What might happen? So we are, we are starting a pilot program for outpatient conservatorship. Right now it's pilot, meaning it's just a sample for five patients, but I just wanna sort of give you an idea of what that might look like. So while somebody is on the street, you can gather the data to complete what we call the dossier. Um, actually, uh, the dossier, is sort of shorthand for this form that we've created at PMHP um, that can help you figure out what kind of information you need to gather in order to make an, a strong argument for conservatorship. So you fill out that information and we'll give you a link uh, to this form that's called a tool for something, something, tool for conservatorship essentially is what it is. Um, so you might get a court date for that conservatorship hearing and the hearing will be successful and Angela will be conserved, but uh, you've got to get her off the streets. So what, what might you do? So you might actually place her on another 5150 because she's still quite ill. And this time though, she's going to be hospitalized as a conserved patient, um, which means you have a lot more options for her. Uh, so what might these options look like for someone who is conserved through inpatient or outpatient conservatorship? Uh, it opens uh, some different doors that you might not have had before. So there is something called the general or specialized subacute facility, which we used to call IMDs, now that's the new name. So if let's say Angela is admitted and she's still quite paranoid about food, even after several weeks of treating her in the inpatient unit with medication. So the team has decided, you know what, we're, we're worried about her safety out there in any, any unlocked facility. So we're going to send her to locked residential care. So that's what that might look like. Or let's say perhaps Angela has way too many medical problems and maybe she has a tendency to wander or she's not very good about grooming herself or toileting. Um, people like that, probably the best, uh, um, environment for them would be a skilled nursing facility because the other psychiatric facilities are not really set up to deal with people who don't groom themselves and use the bathroom by themselves or are able to walk independently. Um, let's say Angela's symptoms are really well controlled now that she's in the hospital on medication and you want to send her to somewhere that is, is a voluntary unlocked place, but that has a little bit more structure. Uh, so you might apply for enriched, enriched residential services, which we used to call step down. Um, 
these names are confusing. I'm sorry about that. So these will also be on our tip list that we're going to give you the link for so you can sort of differentiate between all these levels of care. Now, what if we didn't get Angela conserved? Um, what other options might we have because she gets be, being kicked out and sent back to the streets? We might try assisted outpatient treatment, which we call AOT. So let's say Angela uh, has a history in her youth of being um, a sex worker. So we are worried that she has a high risk of returning to her trafficker. And, and perhaps we know in the past she wasn't able to stay on her medications and so she got jailed quite a few times for sex work. Uh, so perhaps you get her enrolled in an FSP and that FSP can work with Angela and get her started on medications and perhaps put her in an ERS, the Enriched Residential Services, uh, where she might have groups where she can participate in groups about trauma. Um, or perhaps you want her to go through the Enriched, Enhanced <laughs> Residential Care, ERC, because her symptoms are well controlled and, and you know she can live in a voluntary unlocked facility, but that has a, a little bit more supervision. Um, again, I know these, I sort of breezed through all of these medical respite, crisis residential, AOT. So we are going to have a lecture next in two weeks, that will be part four, where we're gonna be talking much more in detail about outpatient conservatorship, about AOT, and all of the legal things that um, are applied to this population. So just a reminder, when they're on the inpatient unit, the things you wanna make sure that they're having when, when you're preparing for discharge, um, you want to be sure that they have at least one month prescription or actual supply of their medications, and that's psych medications and their non-psych medications. And if they've been getting, maybe they haven't been getting any pills, they've been getting long-acting injectable medications. You wanna be sure that you have an appointment or a place where you can take them one month from, or two weeks from whenever their last injection was. So you need to know that injection date. So you know when to take them perhaps to the mental health urgent care to get them their follow-up injection because maybe you got them a DMH clinic appointment, but they're not going to be able to see a psychiatrist that quickly. So you take them to the urgent care. Um, also, uh, you want to pay attention to aftercare. Do they have a clinic appointment with a psychiatrist because they're going to need to get refills for those prescription medications? Do they have a clinic appointment with a primary care doctor who can keep giving them their diabetes prescriptions and their high blood pressure medication prescriptions? And also you wanna pay attention to, does your client need help with ADLs and IADLs? Now ADLs, activities of daily living, those are things like using the bathroom independently, being able to dress yourself, being able to shower, uh, being able to walk, um, being able to transfer maybe from, from your bed to your wheelchair. If they can do those things on their own, um, then really doesn't matter what setting they go to, but if they need help with those things, you're going to have to think about what's the right setting for them. Also, independent activities of daily living. Those are things like paying bills, cooking. A lot of our clients have trouble with those, and so maybe those are situations where a little more supervision would be better.
Okay, so following after discharge. The important thing to remember is that the first month after clients get discharged is actually kind of the, the biggest danger zone. We know that patients with serious mental illness are twice as likely to be hospitalized, to be re-hospitalized in 30 days than people without severe mental illness. And that people who have an initial hospital stay with a diagnosis of schizophrenia are 22% more likely to be readmitted to the hospital within 30 days. So this is the, the most vulnerable time when it's really important to still follow your clients and make sure that they're in the right situation. Um, obviously, if they went back on the streets, uh, you're gonna be following them anyways. Uh, staying well is really an active process that requires your attention and support. And so I just want to thank you because it's your team's hard work that is changing lives. Um, so, uh, questions. Um, Dr. McGee, I think one question we had um, came from Maureen earlier when you were talking about interdisciplinary communications and trying to call into hospitals and collaborating. So Maureen's question was, you know, are the attending MDs more receptive to hearing from another MD? Is there intradisciplinary communication challenges? Um, should we ask to speak to the MD directly or should we relay things through a hospital social worker or caseworker? What would you say to me? Um, I would say actually, even I call the social workers. I find it really challenging to get another MD on the phone, even though I am an MD. Um, sometimes when I was even the director <laughs> of a program, it didn't matter. I uh, still couldn't get doctors on the phone. Private hospitals particularly, their doctors are there for actually really short periods of time. So physically, it's gonna be hard to even get somebody to be there at the same time when you're calling. That is not necessarily the case at county psych hospitals. Um, so yeah, I would actually encourage you just, just to do uh, a social worker. Um, they tend to be more open to collaborating and care and maybe it's because they're there more often they have time I don't know but that's usually what works for me okay so reaching out through the social worker or caseworker is probably your best bet of getting someone on the line yes. for lots of reasons um, we also had a really um, interesting comment coming from Anthony about similarly that you know with with working with different teams in the inpatient hospital sometimes they have issues with weekend and weekday staff um, so for instance maybe um, the weekday staff might say, yes, we're, we're going to hold this particular client, but then over the weekend they get discharged. So yeah. do you have any tips or tricks on how to navigate <laughs> uh, the weekend changeover and stuff? The short answer is no. What you could try to do, um, I do this for my patients specifically, but you're going to have to get a doctor to agree to do this is if you have, if you happen to be working with an inpatient psychiatrist or maybe a consulting psychiatrist that would be willing to write an order that says, so the nursing would essentially, if you write an order saying, please contact uh, Dr. McGee and put her phone number upon just prior to discharge then the nurse is required to follow the order and call you before right before they discharge the patient uh, that's your best bet uh, it depends on who you happen to be working with if they'd be willing to do that or not okay so that wouldn't even necessarily say keep someone from being 
Dish no, <laughs> no. It means that you're going to be told. It means you're going to be notified. Okay. Getting an in, getting a weekend team to follow another team's. You know, it's there. There's no. There's a lack of communication always in every level of care. I'm sure you guys have it even amongst your colleagues. It's unfortunate, but that's what's happened. And there's not a whole lot to prevent. You know, mistakes like that. I see. Yeah, and I think Beth, Beth is reiterating that as a great tip um, that you could ask the physician to write that in the order that you're notified before discharge. And it sounds like that's that's maybe the best bet is no stopping the weekend team from making their evaluations and moving forward with that. Unfortunately. Yeah. Um, okay. And I think there was one from earlier as well um, from the first set of questions that we missed. Um, and it was from Latina. And I think when you were explaining what would be helpful in a 5150 hold, you included quite a bit of history that would be helpful. And I think as we all know, there's quite a bit of limited space on the hold. So is it beneficial to, to create a supplemental document, kind of like a C attached for more? Sure. Is that going to be read or helpful? Yeah, no, it's a, it certainly doesn't hurt. You know, uh, every once in a while, we have somebody that does that. I think it's for me as a doctor, I can say it's extremely helpful because then I don't have to go search out that information. I can include it in my note, you know, um, just just copy and paste, essentially. Um, the, the nice thing now that they've made the hold a little bit bigger, so you have that second side, so you have that space, which is specifically for history, so you don't have to put it in those first two paragraphs. But yeah, if you don't have enough space, great. Add it, add it in an extra document. Or if you are fortunate enough to reach somebody, you can call and share that information. We don't necessarily, I should say, we at the county hospitals do not have access to the MIS system unless we have a DMH employee who gets that for us. So we have DMH liaisons who can help, but sometimes they're not available or they don't work on, in, in this part of the hospital or that part of the hospital. So it can be really challenging for us to get that uh, information that you have, that history that you have access to. So that's wonderful if you can give it to us. Okay, great. Sounds like the more information, the better. Be in a supplemental form, call, keep calling until somebody <laughs> will pick up and listen to the information you've got. That, that sounds yeah. like um, the tip that you have for us there. Um, okay, great. The, the chat's been pretty quiet um, so far with questions. I don't know okay. if folks are, are busy filling out the evaluations, <laughs> um, but I think it is 301, but some of us will hang out on the line for a little bit longer, yeah. um, just in case there are things that come up. Um, Latina, Beth, I don't know if you have other comments or announcements that you might want to make to the group here. Um, I will just say um, to Dr. McGee, thank you so much. It was really valuable information, and I, I hope the rest of the members of the team found it as helpful uh, as, as I did, just kind of in the execution of their daily work um, as we move forward uh, with the work of home and the department as a whole. Um, I don't have any more except, you know, we're very excited for the next part and very excited that um, we're going to have Connie, Connie Drexler from the Public Guardian is going to be uh, leading that charge and we're very excited to hear from her and her many, many years of valuable experience. So thank you all and thank you all for that, that contributed to uh, this and the previous training.